Hello, hello, everyone. This is Volt for June 15th, 2022. Volt's podcast, Johannes Akva on effective climate altruism. I'm your host, David Roberts. Say you are a private individual or a company or a foundation who cares about climate change and has some money to spend on it. What is the best way to spend that money? How can you ensure the largest possible impact? Similar questions about maximizing philanthropic impact have led to an entire field of study and practice known as effective altruism, which seeks to apply logical and empirical rigor to do-gooderism. But it is only very recently that effective altruists have turned their attention to climate change. One of the leading effective altruism voices on climate is Johannes Akva. He is a researcher at Founders Pledge, an organization through which business owners and entrepreneurs donate a portion of their earnings to charity. For years, Akva has been thinking through the puzzle of how best to channel climate philanthropy, given the structure of the problem and the politics around it. If you're interested in what groups Founders Pledge has chosen for its donations, you can find a list on their website. But I was more interested in the thinking that led Akva to those recommendations. Given the enormous spatial and temporal scales involved in climate change, the many social and political complexities, the extensive and irreducible uncertainties, how can a well-meaning donor have any confidence in their choices? I found our conversation quite enlightening, a new lens through which to view this familiar problem, and I think you will too. Johannes Akva, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Let's start a few steps back, since I'm not entirely sure that the Volts audience will be familiar with effective altruism, the effective altruism movement, even though it's gained quite a bit of press attention recently, but I, I don't know that it's still all that well known. So why don't, just to start with, just tell us briefly what is effective altruism and what is it trying to do? So effective altruism is really like a social and intellectual movement that tries to answer the question, how can we do the most good possible and not only answer that question in a theoretical way, but kind of in a very practical way, actually trying to do as much good as possible. And there are these two components to it. I think the first one, of course, is, or that I would stress is like altruism, which is about yeah, trying to be really serious about helping other people and other beings. So like effective altruists usually take a global take, uh, including all humans, also all future humans, also all animals. So like having a really expansive form of altruism and many effective altruists donate a large part of their income kind of to the global poor or like change their career. So this is kind of the altruism piece of it. And then there's kind of this effectiveness piece, which is like thinking really hard and long and like trying to use as much evidence as possible to think about how can we have um, the most impact, so the most positive impact. And one thing about impact here that I think is, is crucial because I think it will come up throughout our conversation because I think a lot of what I'm saying on climate is kind of motivated by this is the notion of counterfactual impact. So 
given what everyone else is doing, what is kind of the thing that is additional that should be done next? So kind of not try, only trying to have impact, but trying to have impact that otherwise would not um, happen in the world. And I think that's really key to, to how we think about climate. And this is the concept of uh, additionality. Additional, yeah. Doing something that would not otherwise be done. Doing something that would not otherwise be done. Yes, that's, that's the concept of additionality. I won't claim any deep familiarity with the ins and outs of the movement, but my impression over the last few years is that some of the um, most prominent spokespeople for effective altruism are relatively down on climate change as a target for philanthropic giving. I think the idea is that, as you say, they're trying to think about all humans today and all humans that will ever be. <laughs> and so, you know, they're thinking about what might cause the extinction of the human race. And they say, well, climate is unlikely to cause extinction, whereas, you know, a terrible pandemic or, um, I don't know, an asteroid or an AI that, <laughs> that becomes sentient and, uh, you know, does a Terminator on us are, are much greater threats of, of extinction. So why, within the context of effective altruism, do you think that climate change is a worthy sort of target for people's giving and attention? Yeah, I think first, first I would say you're broadly right there. And it was kind of funny because I've been a climate person before I've been an effective, before I encountered effective altruism. So uh, it's kind of the first time where I kind of had to justify myself for why am I working on climate? Right. Um, <laughs> which growing up in Germany was kind of something I never had to justify myself for. Um, <laughs> so I think that that's probably right, that most effective altruism actually do not focus on climate. And I think the reason that you outline this is broadly right. So like climate is a really big threat and i think effective altruists acknowledge that and like there's like very serious threats from extreme climate change so like the view is not that climate isn't a serious problem i think effective altruists take it like very seriously but i think kind of seeing like a broad set of like problems of like similar magnitude or nuclear war like advanced artificial intelligence that you mentioned or bio risk many of those issues receive like far far less attention than climate change so this is kind of the reason that many effective altruists would not kind of first go to climate but you think they're they're wrong about that, that climate is a worthy target of giving and philanthropy. What is the effective altruism justification for focusing on climate? Yeah. Okay, so I think the effective altruism uh, justification for caring about climate kind of has these two different aspects. One is kind of if we think about humans alive today or humans alive in the near future. So there's obviously like, I think, we, as we know from kind of the literature on climate impacts, like the vulnerable populations in the global south will kind of suffer the most from climate mm -hmm. and like helping them can be quite effective also because solving climate change um, is related to solving some other really big problems and particularly air pollution and energy poverty. So if you kind of think about clean energy abundance as one possible solution for climate change, that will actually solve all of those issues. Right. So you're kind of solving three problems in one there when you when you yeah. solve this problem. Yeah, that's, I think, the first piece. And I think the second piece that I would say is if you kind of think about global catastrophic risk or if you think about the importance of like geopolitical stability and like kind of good international cooperation and you think about like how climate change can go wrong, how climate change can cause like migration, international tension, etc. So I think that's another kind of set of reasons to care about climate change, just making the world in general less fragile, more resilient, kind of trying to reduce geopolitical pressure. 
Yeah, because they say climate is a threat multiplier, right? That's yeah. the that's the term that you use. So, so in yeah. a sense, by decreasing the threat of climate, you are also decreasing all those other risks. Yeah. So to add one little bit of nuance here, I'm not kind of saying to effective altruists do more on climate to less of these all of these other things. So, like, just want to be very clear about this. I think what I gave you is like I think what I kind of think as as the strongest case for caring about climate change, but it is true that there are other risks of similar order of magnitude in terms of risk that we're spending a hundred or less of the attention on. So <laughs> I think if, if I think about this, so like I think it's, it's broadly right to think about climate not as the most neglected issue, globally speaking. So even you would say from an effective altruism point, while climate is worthy of attention, there are other risks worthy of attention that are getting less attention than climate. Is that what you're saying? I think that's what I would say if, if we would only think about like importance and neglectedness of those problems. There is, however, another dimension, and I think that's also really important in making the case for climate. And that dimension is uh, tractability, so like the ability to make additional progress. Mm -hmm. And I think climate looks extraordinarily good on that dimension compared to many of those other problems that I uh, mentioned for a couple of, couple of reasons. Tell us about that then. Tell us why, you know, in terms of tractability, meaning there's progress to be made, there's low-hanging fruit uh, available, you might say. So why should we think that climate philanthropy in particular can produce results? Yeah, great question. So I think there are essentially like three reasons that I would kind of mention that make me believe that to be true. The first one is that attention to climate overall, like societal attention, like including policy, economics, et cetera, is actually really high and is at an all-time high, right? So mm -hmm. like we're now kind of uh, spending about a trillion or so in the global economy and policy on like climate and kind of has been a really important part of Biden's agenda, has been a really important part of Europe, of course, for a long time. So there's a lot of attention to climate. So I think that's the first piece. The second piece is a lot of that attention is not spent optimally in terms of the ultimate goal, what I kind of see as the ultimate goal of acting on climate, which is like reducing climate damage as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And there's some very predictable biases. So for example, the US and Europe are like maybe like 15% of future emissions. So like kind of the fact of climate action should always kind of think about global emissions, but there are lots of political incentives to kind of focus locally. Right. There's lots of ideological issues. There's lots of special interests. So like a lot of the intention on climate is like kind of not spent optimally. So that's kind of the second piece. And the, the third piece is if you think about climate philanthropy and the role that climate philanthropy can play. So if you kind of think only very conservatively that like you can kind of shift how the public response is improved by like something like, I don't know, a tenth of a percent or something like that. Something like that can still be extraordinarily uh, valuable. So essentially leveraging uh, the attention and kind of trying to help steer the climate momentum that exists in a way that it's more useful for global decarbonization. Right. So you sort of got the raw material there. You've got the attention and the, and the will to do something. And you think a little bit of sort of nudging it in a better direction could have a, a, a big positive effect. Yeah. I want to uh, focus in on one of the other things you said there. And this is a, a quote from one of your papers. It says, the goal of high impact climate philanthropy is not to maximize emission reductions but to minimize climate damage. It might not be obvious to people what the distinction is there. So explain that a little bit and explain sort of what those two different approaches would sort of imply. Yeah, no, that's not obvious at all. And it wasn't obvious to me for, for a long time. I only really fully grappled with this last year when I wrote this paper. 
So I guess the first intuition to think about maximum impact and climate philanthropy would really be, okay, we want to maximize emissions reductions. But there's something particular about the climate challenge that I think makes this intuition wrong. And that is the fact that kind of climate damage is highly nonlinear. So if we kind of think about a three degree world, this is much worse than twice as bad than a 1.5 degree world. Mm -hmm. Again, a six degree world is much worse than twice as bad than a three degree world. This means if we think about or if we use a concept like the social cost of carbon, that, that would be a similar concept. The social cost of carbon at like different levels of temperature is very different. It's much more valuable to avoid an additional ton of carbon in a six degree world than in a 1.5 degree world. Mm -hmm. And the key thing here, I mean, I think that that's standard climate science. And I would say like it's really kind of <laughs> I would think like one of the most uncontroversial facts about climate. But the, the key thing here is that we actually know, quote unquote, things that must be true if we're kind of in a four degree world and compared to like a one degree world. So, for example, if we're in a four degree world, Zika Hausfather, the climate scientist Zika Hausfather has said, we're not in a four degree world and renewables have succeeded beyond all expectations. Right. Because like, so this kind of means that in this four degree world, there's solutions or there's hedges that can be like extremely valuable. So one of them would, for example, be advanced nuclear, which to, like, to a degree is kind of a hedge against failure of renewables to some degree, which might not play a big role in the best case world, right? Maybe there's the best case world where renewables succeed all expectations, but there's like an extraordinarily like hedging value of those kind of solutions. So this is kind of something where like maximizing emission reductions would not kind of lead you to this conclusion, but minimizing uh, climate damage leads you to other kind of conclusions. Right. So if you're trying to maximize emission reductions, you would just spin for the cheapest, most obvious reductions available now, which were, will generally be renewables or something like that. But you're, it sounds like, describing something more like trying to reduce risk rather than emissions. Yes. And risk rises <laughs> nonlinearly. So you think philanthropy should be hedging against failure, hedging against the failure of mainstream approaches, basically. Does that sound right? All right let me answer this in, in two parts. I think the first it's not really about time. It's not really about spending now versus long-term impact. So it's not about spending on renewables now for the cheapest back. It's more like thinking about what kind of correlates with different climate futures. So for, for example, if you think that like one thing that's often des described as very cost-effective, like forestry, avoiding deforestation, that is very cost-effective, say like having agreements between like Europe and Brazil to kind of avoid deforestation. That is very cost-effective in the best of worlds where like international cooperation and like the quality of agreements is stronger than it actually is right now. Mm. If we're in that kind of setting, we're not going to have a lot of climate damage. So even though this might maximize emissions reduction and expectation wouldn't minimize damage. So it's not about the timing, but what kind of correlates with different kind of scenarios. So what I'm talking about always is counterfactual impact and what to do given what everyone else is doing. So mm -hmm. I'm absolutely not saying like we shouldn't focus on renewables or we shouldn't focus on uh, natural climate solutions. It's more about like, given that we have a large focus on this, what should we do next? And then my, my argument would always be like the value of like hedging against the failure of mainstream solutions is extremely valuable because right now we're in a situation where mainstream solutions get a lot of attention. We can also see the success of that, right? So like the future future emission trajectories have gone down a lot because of the success of renewables, like more than I think most people appreciate. 
So like there, there have been like really big successes. If we think about how things can go wrong, how shit can hit the fan, <laughs> it's not because we spend like 1% less of additional climate philanthropy retention on renewables. It's because something goes wrong there or something goes wrong with another solution. Like let's say international <laughs> climate policy falls apart, which looks more realistic now than a couple of months ago. <laughs> so something like that happens, right? And like, this is how we get into those worst worlds. And so we, we want to hedge against those worlds. We want to look at solutions that kind of, on the one hand, are robust to those worlds. And on the other hand, um, provide explicit hedges. So in the case, like protect against likely failures that are true in those worlds. Right, right. And another big piece of this, and this is something I've run into a lot of times when I talk to both just sort of individuals who are uh, thinking about what to do with their money, but also foundations and, and sort of, um, you know, people who have access to big pots of money, is that unlike some altruistic endeavors you could imagine, like if say you're buying mosquito nets, you know, this is the sort of cliche example, but mosquito nets for children in Africa, you can calculate pretty firmly and clearly exactly how many lives you will save per dollar spent. But when it comes to climate change, the problem is so big and sprawling. It's so long-term and it's so unclear what will work and what won't that just this sort of sheer wall of uncertainty, I think, is daunting to people and often pushes them toward those climate solutions that are more kind of short-term and tangible and measurable. But, you know, you're sort of counseling against that approach. So, so talk a little bit about how climate philanthropists should think about uncertainty and like what uncertainty means for, for their giving. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think the worst thing you can do in climate is like trying to avoid uncertainty. I think I sometimes <laughs> say like, it's much better to probably have a large impact than to like certainly have a low impact. And like there's a huge, like if you kind of optimize for certainty, there's there's a huge trade-off um, to be made there. And the reason is, I think as you alluded to, like climate is incredibly complex, right? There's like three or four like intertwined systems, like mm -hmm. how much will economies grow? How emissions intensive will it grow? growth be how will the climate system react to this how much damage will this cause so it's a situation of vast vast uncertainty and also like not only in kind of the climate response but also kind of on the solution side right i mean i think you've covered this a lot like if you think about the debates about 100 percent renewables if you think about the debates about uh how far will electrification go so like there are a lot of those debates where there's like really large uncertainty and those uncertainties will not be resolved in a time that is action relevant, there will be kind of resolved when it's too late, <laughs> right. right? Right, right. So, so you kind of have to, like, you have to kind of think like this uncertainty is a fact of the situation. And we need to make decisions under this deep uncertainty where like, we don't know anything for quite sure. So I think the way to deal with this is to, to think about, I mean, first of all, what do we know? And what can we conclude from this? And I, I think two or three key facts that I think guide a lot of um, my thinking and my grant making certainly is like, if you kind of think about like one thing that I mentioned before, which is like the nonlinear climate damage, so kind of um, higher failing at higher levels is like disproportionately worse. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important. Uh, the other piece is like, okay, there, there's already a fair amount of attention on, on some of the like mainstream solutions. And then 
the third piece is kind of what do we know about those uncertainties and how they resolve. So if we kind of think about electrification or the success of renewables or et cetera, like if all of those things kind of resolve positively and positively here means like, okay, they're resolving in the way that kind of has minimal climate damage, that's pretty good. In those cases, additional climate philanthropy will not be very valuable. If those solutions kind of resolve negatively, those are the worlds that contain the most risk. Let's say a world with like lots of growth in emerging economies, breakdown of international cooperation, some kind of limitation to kind of getting renewables over 50%, something like these are the worlds where like by far the most risk is, even if those worlds are not very probable. And I would not say they're like, th those are not like the majority of my probability mass, but they're the majority of the worlds that I kind of care about because there's so much damage there. Right. So that's kind of where this comes from, like hedging against the worst cases and also thinking about the structure of how different uncertainties relate to each other. I can talk a bit more about that as well. One of the points you make that I think is really good and worth emphasizing is that even if we can't measure in an absolute sense what effect particular solutions or particular st giving strategies might have, we can draw conclusions about their relative impact, one set of solutions versus another. And that's what you need to act, right, it, it is a prioritization of solutions, not necessarily final answers about what they'll do, but just which are more likely to have positive effects. That's exactly right. Yeah. I want to get back to a, one of those uncertainties. But first, I want to talk about, to get a little tangible here, one of the things you point out, and there's some great charts in your reports, is about, you know, you say that climate philanthropy is on the rise now. There's quite a bit of money flooding into this space in recent years. But there are sort of two key imbalances in where money is currently being spent. One of those is that most of the money is going to the U.S. and the EU, even though, as you say, they are together responsible for maybe 15% of future emissions. And the other is that most money is going to clean electricity and natural solutions, i.e. trees and reforestation and the like. And, you know, as you say, it's not that those things are bad, <laughs> but uh, there are spaces being neglected. And this sort of whole notion of neglectedness plays a huge role in all the effective altruism stuff I've read. So tell us a little bit why you think those imbalances are bad and what spaces, important spaces in particular, do you think are most neglected these days? Yeah. Just to be clear, I think the case that I want to make about neglectedness is not that we're overspending on renewables and trees. I think that, that the case is much more we're, we're underspending on a lot of other sectors. And like if we kind of think about where the next dollar should go, they should probably go to those other sectors. So I guess the first piece um, about kind of the geographical um, distribution of that, right? So like it's, um, okay, about 15% of future emissions at most will kind of come from the US and Europe. And if you kind of think about affectable emissions, that share is probably lower because if you kind of look at the world and the US and Europe, climate policy there is like above average binding. Mm -hmm. So like, which means like if you reduce an emission and like if you're in a, in a liberal state in the US or if you're kind of in the EU, if you reduce an emission there, the additionality of that is rarely 100%. So actually the actual share is actually lower because there's policy already over determining this. Yeah, yeah. Let me. I, I want to pause and, and kind of put an exclamation point on that because I think it's an important point. If you are in a place where emission reductions are sort of in statute, it's arguable that 
your additional reduction throwing into that pot is not going to do anything additional since the reduction is going to happen anyway by statute. So that's where you fail the sort of additionality test is when you're operating in a place where the trends in law and regulation are already sort of mandating what you would be trying to do anyway. Yeah, that's exactly right, right? And that's disproportionately the case kind of in those jurisdictions. So I think that's kind of the first piece. And obviously, like I'm not saying only 15% of climate philanthropy should be focused on those regions because there's obviously like if we look at climate attention and if we look about ways to kind of shape future emissions through climate leadership, through innovation, etc., the U.S. and Europe do play a disproportionate role. So like it wouldn't be right to say like what we should be aiming for is like 15% for those regions. Right. But we can still see various systematic effects. Like, I think the reason that there's so much spending on the U.S. is not because someone decided, okay, this is the impact-maximizing solution. The reason is because, like, most climate philanthropy is from the U.S. and most people find it much easier to donate to an American-focused organization. And the reason this is problematic, or the reason that I would kind of say this, this leaves impact on the table, is because there are dynamics about future emission growth and particularly carbon lock-in that are kind of dependent on, on where you are in the world. So like they're not kind of the result of like global innovation, they're the result of like infrastructure decisions, policy decisions being made right now. And a lot of those 85% of the future emissions come from regions that are growing very strongly right now that are making a lot of kind of infrastructure decisions about how to build grids, how to build new coal plants or not, <laughs> that will kind of have consequences for decades into the future. So those are like really high leverage points for intervention. And there's very little attention paid to these in total. And if there is, it's very focused on like a couple of key sectors or, or key solutions. And, and then you have situations where like, for example, if you look at like climate philanthropy targeted at Indonesia, like Indonesia is one of the places where like coal is kind of growing the most, but mm -hmm. still there's like fairly little attention to this. And you, you will find this in many of these sectors that are like large parts of future emissions that receive very little attention, where it's kind of probable that if you would look a bit more closely, if you would kind of start and do some early philanthropic work that you would find like quite high impact uh, leverage points because early engagement is often much more impactful than later engagement. Right. So the first dollar there is probably going to have more impact than, you know, whatever the millionth dollar uh, in the U.S. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. And crucially, the millionth dollar in the U.S. is easier to fundraise for than the first dollar there. Right, right, right. Also, in terms of, uh, you know, clean electricity, I sometimes think, I go back and forth on this, I sometimes think that there's almost too much talk about clean electricity being kind of, you know, a done deal that we can move on from now and, and focus on other things. But, you know, like when I hear that, I want to point out clean electricity is on a positive trajectory, but not anywhere close to the slope it needs to be on or the speed it needs to be on. It's not, a, it's by no means a done deal. So what's the sort of, um, justification for turning attention away from clean electricity, which I think you and I agree is going to be, is probably going to be the bulk of the solution. What's the sort of justification for looking elsewhere in your giving? So at no point would I suggest to turn away event, uh, attention from clean electricity. It's more like we are in a space like climate that is strongly growing. And the question is where to put additional money right now. But I think about like if you kind of look at those clean electricity numbers, and by the way, like this clean electricity funding, I mean, 90% of that is like renewables. And I think like 90% of that is like solar and wind, like if I would have to make a guess. 
and this this philanthropic funding has played a huge role in kind of triggering the policies that led to the cost reduction. So like this has been hugely impactful. Uh, so like this was like absolutely the right priority to set. But if we kind of think about like geothermal, for example, um, like super hot rock geothermal mm-hmm. or like innovations in geothermal, uh, which are also renewable, also about clean electricity, they receive like a very, very small share of that. Mm-hmm. So so like um, I've just talked to the Clean Air Task Force yesterday, they have a, like a, they have a program on super hot rock geothermal, which is kind of the essentially the geothermal any, anywhere solution, right. the solution that would make geothermal available, location independent. Potentially uh, huge, yeah. potentially huge, huge resource potentially huge huge resource and like potentially like exactly like attacking this problem that i think is kind of the bottleneck problem in clean electricity which is like firm or balancing right right so like it's jesse jenkins on so like if you think about that right and this is a solution that have huge impact in clean electricity but there's like one million or so like philanthropic effort (laughs) to make this happen right and like at the same time we're spending something like on the order of six to seven hundred million on clean electricity in general so i agree with you like clean electricity is not solved, but the thing that can reduce risk there is kind of um, not what the priority of the current clean electricity philanthropic spending is focused on. Probably like a bet of like 1 million philanthropically right now. And I mean, if you think about advanced nuclear or something else, it's probably something like 10 million. So there are also within these categories, these like what I think would be like quite huge imbalances. And I think the other part is also like what's the role of philanthropy? The reason that I think it was great to invest philanthropically really heavily in like wind and solar kind of maybe until like 10 or 15 years ago and that this would have been absolute priorities like because this really like helped really unleash kind of the policy change which then led to the technological change which leads to kind of like a trajectory change in emissions and future emissions. Right. But we're not in that moment anymore, right? So like we're not in the moment where like solar and wind are kind of niche industries like at this point those industries are growing and i think there's like really hard problems to be overcome there but like if i think about philanthropy as kind of catalyzing early change i I don't really see like wind and solar failing because the next 10 million of climate philanthropy go towards either solutions let me put it this way right right and so you know so we have some clean technologies that are on a positive trajectory you know, whether it's going fast enough or not, it, at least it's on the sort of on the learning curve. And then there's a bunch of other climate technologies that uh, are widely expected to be needed that are not on those trajectories at all, that are not on the learning curves at all. So to draw an analogy to what we were saying earlier, like the first dollar spent on getting one of those technologies on a good trajectory will have more impact than the millionth dollar spent accelerating the wind and solar trajectory exactly exactly and like i would say tremendously more impact so so i would say like the differentials here it's not like two probably my best guess would be more in the order of like a hundred or a thousand so like because there's essentially nothing happening um <laughs> i mean for super hot rock geothermal it's essentially i mean quite literally putting this idea on the map like building the kind of coalitions of government yeah of like getting innovation funding for this like connecting the different industries, the research labs, et cetera, like connecting this to people who could implement it. So like, this is like very early stuff with like really outsized impact potentially. And I mean, have you seen similar things like for something like carbon removal, right? Where it's like been mm-hmm. clear from the scientific literature, like we're definitely going to need carbon removal kind of if we want to get to 1.5 degrees. I think that has been clear since 2015 or so at the latest, right? And has 
taking time for this to like sink into policy discussions and like again like philanthropy or like NGOs kind of that are philanthropically funded so in this case I want to like mention another kind of grantee of ours like Carbon 180 are quite important in like early field building like early attention building etc so like can play a really huge role and then we're having a stimulus in the US or like uh, an infrastructure investment bill and it makes a real difference like there's there's clear there's going to be a huge climate component but kind of the organizations that are going to be present there kind of shaping this like it, it makes a difference that there is an organization that is really strong and connecting the science to the policy needs under the most neglected technologies because this this makes a difference that gets us to innovation my impression is that one of the things that almost everybody in the effective altruism movement who's thinking about climate at all agrees on is that innovation is a good target but you know the sort of the mirror I don't know if this is the right analogy. The mirror image of innovation is carbon lock-in. So we were talking earlier about uncertainties. And one of the key points you make is that not all uncertainties are additive, meaning uh, you just sort of multiply one uncertainty by another by another and just get bigger and bigger and bigger uncertainty bars. Some of them are negatively correlated. So talk about how that plays out in terms of innovation and carbon lock-in. Those are sort of two key concepts here. Yeah. When I think about future emissions and what will determine those, I think there are these two two really big trajectory changing dynamics. And one of them is like innovation, as we've seen with solar, as we're seeing with electric cars, kind of really radical changes. And where like early decisions and like geographically quite specific decisions, right? It's not global decisions, can make a huge dent on like global emissions, changing kind of the trajectory for decades to come. So, so this is the innovation piece. And just to pause there, because you make this point well in the paper, is that you know, one of the key players in that early innovation in solar was Germany, um, you know, on solar. And as you say, if Germany had been approaching this problem from a how can we maximize emission reductions per dollar approach, they never would have spent on solar. They were, it was extremely inefficient way to reduce emissions at the point they were spending, but it sort of catalyzed this trajectory. And so the indirect effects were huge in terms of, of uh, emission reductions. Yeah, yeah. The short-term solution would have been to buy Russian gas. This would, would have been a like, much cheaper way. And I think this is really why we should never evaluate kind of climate actions by their local short-term effects. We should always evaluate them by their global long-term effects. But so like this is the innovation kind of dynamic. And then there's this countervailing dynamic, which is carbon lock-in, which is like infrastructure decisions and capital investment decisions and the new coal plants, new steel plants, etc. that kind of determine or really strongly influence emissions over decades to come because like once kind of this asset is built the decision about how much kind of to produce is like much much lower than compared to like just like okay we're going to have this high emitting asset there and so if you kind of think about this two dynamics as kind of competing and then you kind of see okay actually on the innovation front pushing an innovation forward five years is actually often much more valuable than just like five years of reduced emissions because it kind of can kind of think at the lever points before like let's just think about how the world would be different if we had had cheap solar in when when china started to expand like the world would look very different today oh, right. um so there's these huge huge lock-in effects but of course there are these two dynamics and again uncertainty my, my friend uncertainty here <laughs> if we think about like the ultimate potential of like acting on those two mechanisms on the one hand trying to avoid carbon lock and on the other hand kind of trying to accelerate um, and improve the success of innovation the relative like potential of those two um, theories of change is, is negatively correlated what do i mean with that so there is a world where kind of carbon lock-in 
is relatively benign. Let's say it turns out that we can get renewables so cheap that it becomes easy, uh, like renewables and storage, and we solve all of the attendant problems, right? Like, let's say we're in the very best case world. In this case, maybe it becomes realistic that we're retiring coal plants early, or we're replacing them. If something that we're working on is like repowering coal, maybe we can kind of replace the heat source in coal plants with geothermal or with, with advanced nuclear. So this is a world where like kind of carbon lock-in maybe has relatively less influence because like retrofitting is easy or like premature retiring kind of becomes possible politically and economically. So this is a world like kind of that the maximum impact of innovation would be in this world. So in this world, like carbon lock-in is kind of maybe less important. Avoiding carbon lock-in is less important. Of course, there's also this other world where it's not true, right? And where like, yeah, we maybe get all of those innovations, but kind of those innovations will not really fully realize their potential because kind of lock-in is really severe. Like there's a lot of infrastructure, political cloud, invested capital that kind of leads to a situation where we have new low-carbon solutions, but we're not adopting them at the scale that we're at. So those two dynamics are negatively correlated. So like, which means kind of like one of them, if we're kind of on the on the more like bullish side of innovation, maybe if we now invest in innovation and avoiding carbon lock-in, maybe that carbon lock-in investment was less valuable. The other thing kind of goes the other way, right? If, if carbon lock-in is kind of more severe, then investing carbon lock-in is relatively more valuable. And if we're kind of in a situation, and I think that's the situation that we're in, where it's like really... <laughs> Where I'm, I'm really like genuinely uncertain about those two theories of change or about the relative value of additional investment. I want to kind of diversify. Investment in innovation versus investment in avoiding carbon lock-in. Yeah, and I'm sorry, and I mean here like philanthropic investment, right? Right. So yes, and if I'm so like I'm genuinely uncertain between those two um, solutions, but again. I think about kind of the nature of climate damage and I'm reminded of the fact that my goal is not to maximize emission reductions, but to minimize climate damage. And now I have these two really big uncertainties that are negatively correlated. So in this situation, uh, investing in both of them can actually be like impact maximizing mm -hmm. because, uh, because of the structure. So like if the one kind of succeeds more, the other fails a bit more, it's, that's like a more robust kind of investment given the shape of climate damage, given like how much worse it is um, to fail. If that makes sense. Right. So each is kind of a hedge for the other, in a sense. Yes. And I think something similar kind of applies to investing and in accelerating decarbonization and investing in carbon removal, for example. Yeah. One of your conclusions you come to, and this is a quote too, is, is the plausibility space for high impact climate philanthropy primarily contains solutions and approaches that are considered controversial, speculative, or remote. So you sort of, uh, this is where your logic takes you is that if you're counseling people where to give their climate philanthropy dollars, you're probably counseling them not to give to the sort of sexy, <laughs> popular uh, uh, solutions that everybody's hyped about, but some of the more kind of obscure and controversial stuff. And that's all just, you know, so sort of spell that out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like, so like this quote was kind of written in December or no, actually November last year under this impression of like, okay, climate philanthropy and climate philanthropy foundations essentially doubled within a year with the Bezos Earth Fund kind of uh, oh, right. also playing a huge role, right? And also kind of these dynamics essentially to a large degree, like reinforcing like existing kind of foci of like climate philanthropy. So like increasing the, the emphasis on 
clean electricity on the one hand, particularly renewables on the other hand, kind of um, natural climate solutions. As a side note here, do we know where Bezos's money is going yet? I mean, has it been sort of laid out where his giving is going? So it's evolving, but like we, we did include, so like in our like November analysis, we, we used the data from ClimateWorks kind of for the 2020 baseline. And then we kind of looked at all of the Bezos grants that had been made in 2021 and like tried to account for that. And that's these comparative charts there. And there, there you kind of see that I mean, the main takeaway from this for, for me was like, okay, by and large, kind of the, the Bezos commitment, at least the early Bezos commitment, kind of increased spaces that were already like relatively well-funded. I mean, right. it also kind of increased funding in other spaces, but like in absolute terms, this is kind of like more or less kind of increasing those emphasis. So you, uh, I mean, if you were counseling, you know, Bezos or whoever's controlling that pot of money, yeah, you you are going to tell him to channel his money away from those things basically um again always about the margin so it depends on what everyone is doing but like given what everyone else right now is doing and given kind of how climate philanthropy has been like increasing really strongly and also like increasing really strongly over a really short time right so like it's it's not that there are like a lot of like great funding gaps left and kind of popular solutions this, i think that's very implausible to say at this point so that kind of means that yeah i, I would say like if you're, if you're kind of looking for the highest impact opportunities, trying to like look at uh, things that are like controversial or not on the radar, et cetera, is, is probably like the way to go. Stuff like super hot rock geothermal, stuff like carbon removal, stuff like advanced nuclear, stuff like so solutions that are not like solar, wind, electric cars and trees. Right. Um, and not for the reason that those four aren't like great parts of the decarbonization puzzle they are but they are the ones that we all know and we all like and that we all kind of already invest in heavily right we're back to hedging yeah so sort of the strategy you come down on in terms of recommendation is, is robust diversification so so does that just mean what we sort of been discussing sort of hedging by putting some of your money at the margins outside popular solutions or what do you, what do you mean by robust diversification yeah, so I think there's a couple of more uh, dimensions. So the robustness here is robustness to uncertainty. Right. As I think as we've mentioned to before, like there's really large uncertainties that will remain on all relevant timescales, right? Like how far technologies will go, how emissions will evolve, et cetera, how, what will happen to the Paris Agreement. So like part of that is about uh, just like generally like choosing a portfolio right now. If you're kind of choosing a portfolio, you're coming into the space kind of that kind of hedges against the failure of mainstream solutions out of logic that I laid out before, right? So like damage is kind of much worse when the mainstream when the mainstream solutions fail. And right now kind of the, the mainstream solutions are like relatively speaking much, much better funded than like some of the more hedgier solutions mm -hmm. and, and for systematic reasons. So that's that's part of it. The other part is kind of within your portfolio trying to kind of diversify in a way that kind of takes into account what I mentioned, like the negative correlation um, of the uncertainty. Because again, you're not trying to maximize emission reductions, you're trying to minimize damage. So you're kind of choosing, for example, you're complementing your focus, or that's what we're doing, like our focus on, like, say, accelerating decarbonization, uh, which we do with like grantees, like Clean Air Task Force, Future Clean Tech Architects, Terapraxis, like people working on different kind of pieces of that puzzle, mm -hmm. then combining this with like a focus on like uh, carbon removal, like carbon 180 would be would be our recommendation in that space. So there's kind of this negative correlation there. And then I think uh, right now we're trying to take this kind of the next step, kind of looking at different theories of change and diversifying 
there and always kind of driven by this idea of like important is this robustness to kind of the worst worlds where, where kind of the majority of, of the damage is concentrated. It's not really entirely different than a, than a just sort of financial investment strategy. No. It's a portfolio approach for the, for the same reasons. It's a portfolio approach for the same reasons, right? If you, I mean, essentially, if you're doing this in financial terms, what you're saying is like, okay, the marginal utility of money is decreasing, right? So like you're, you're not trying to maximize your income, you're trying to maximize your, your well-being and you're kind of saying, okay, if you're like a millionaire, like getting to 1.2 million is not as valuable. So, so like it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same logic, yes. And so um, one of the things I found really interesting in your work is that you end up really recommending advocacy, public policy advocacy, as opposed to, you know, so if I'm like the, the Bezos fund, I could make strategic investments directly in early stage companies. I could make um, investments directly in, you know, research or found a research center or something like that. But you end up pushing for advocacy. In other words, try to get policy passed, try to change public policy. Why, why do you come down there? Yeah. So first, a clarification. I should be clear about this in my writing, and I'm trying to be clearer here. When I say advocacy, what I really mean is like trying to address large-scale societal resource mobilization. So this can be like changing policy, etc. can also be like changing behavior of large corporate actors. So that's one piece. And also, like, this is not only like... Um, on the hill lobbying so like this also does like can include stuff like doing research kind of on new technologies like on the viability of like new technologies kind of putting things on the map right so so just just to clarify this a little bit advocacy broadly construed advocacy broadly construed not only like beltway lobbying so if we kind of think about that so like why focusing a lot i think like there's kind of two or three answers to this i think the first one is that even if you kind of take the most expensive sum of climate philanthropy let's say right now it's kind of like something like on the order of like 10 billion this is still um at most like a hundred or so of the overall effort spent on climate right compared to public money yeah public yeah so like this is one reason so if you think that you can have like you only need to have like a small multiplier rate like it's not i'm not saying like you get a hundred x multiplier um it's like still given those numbers, it's likely that kind of focusing on advocacy can still have an outsized impact. Um, there's also like literature on that that, that shows that, that this works kind of from, from other fields. But I think the other kind of key part of the answer is, which I think is the, the deeper answer, is like, I mean, ultimately climate change, solving climate change is a policy problem and requires a huge amount of policy. So like technological change, I mean, it's not a garage factory thing, <laughs> right? It's like technological change is like fundamentally the result of like government policy and government incentives being correct and like public investment and innovation, et cetera. And this is not only true for innovation, right? This is also true for, for other parts, like for rolling out uh, technology. So, so for every kind of garage entrepreneur there's like there's a policy kind of behind that that came before usually that came before so so in that sense like i think public policy is really crucial for essentially all parts of the climate challenge and if kind of the policy is set right like the private action and the research etc like kind of will follow so like in the, the causal primacy that what i would call like the causal primacy really relies with like making sure the political um, conditions are as good as they can be i'm sort of curious how philanthropists respond when you pitch this because 
you know, we've talked about uncertainty, but, you know, if I'm Bezos, I'm an executive, I'm used to, you know, quantification and results, and I want to see numbers. And if I want that out of my climate advocacy, you know, like I can spend on a forest and then I can see the forest and I can measure, you know, the tons from the forest or, or whatever. Whereas advocacy, even broadly construed, is so uncertain. It's, it's so unclear what can move politics. I mean, this is very much kind of the central dilemma of climate change is what can move public policy? What can get things moving? So if you commit to that, you are very much taking on the risk, the possibility that you could be wasting your money, that you could spend a bunch of money on advocacy and it could just not do anything. I mean, I think we've seen, <laughs> unfortunately, in the last year or so, an enormous, enormous amount of really well-organized and funded climate advocacy that really is starting to look like is not going to come to anything. <laughs> and I can imagine if I'm a rich philanthropist looking at that and saying, well, you know, screw that. I'm just going to go get some verifiable tons where I can. So, so what, uh, how do you address that? And how do people react when you sort of pitch this? Yeah, that's a great question. There's like lots in there. So let me try to answer all of those different aspects there. So the first one is that I'm not making it easy for myself saying that. <laughs> I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and executives that have, like, I think, as you, as you outlined, like very different intuitions on that, that want to like do impact investing or that kind of want to do stuff that's like fast and certain. And like me saying, like, let's invest in this policy thing that's highly uncertain. Like, it's not the way that kind of maximizes the giving I can, can influence. So it's kind of a position I take because I, I believe it very strongly. And I think that's also like an additional reason why we should think it to be like, relatively speaking, underprovided. Right. It goes against a lot of intuitions. Yeah. And against a lot of intuitions in particular of like new climate money. So mm -hmm. if we kind of think about like new climate money coming into the philanthropy space, a lot of that is kind of coming from people who got rich in tech. <laughs> yes. Apply kind of their own like mental models yes. and their own success yes. stories. So like for them, like it's much more natural to invest kind of uh, impact investing or start their own company than to say like, we're going to do this policy advocacy thing. So like, if you kind of think about this, this is one, once again, like one of these like psychological factors or like one of these systematic features that sh should make you expect that advocacy is underprovided, relatively speaking to its impact. Right. Because while it's much more uncertain and even if it's highly effective, oftentimes you will not know it right. because the best advocacy is the kind of advocacy where, where an organization will influence a policymaker and they will never talk about it publicly because talking about it publicly would like destroy the entire impact. Because the whole, the whole <laughs> right. point of it is that the policymaker thinks they came up with this themselves. <laughs> right. It's thankless. Yeah, it's thankless work. But I mean, that's, I think, why it's so crucial to support it. Um, and I think one thing I would kind of a little bit disagree here with like, okay, with saying like, there's been this huge effort and nothing kind of came of it. I mean, so like, we also invested hugely in the wake of Biden wins in the U.S. advocacy space. And I wouldn't say nothing came of it, right? So, like, there's, there is the infrastructure bill. There's the Build Back Better plan. The infrastructure bill is not what we, like, hoped for. Like, we would be much better with Build Back Better as a path as well. But there is a lot of stuff in the infrastructure bill that's kind of helping with relatively, like, nascent solutions. So, like, I don't see that a lot of the bets there were a failure. 
right? Well, maybe I was too cynical. Yeah. And, and I think you could say, even if Build Back Better ends up not passing, which is very much a possibility at this point, you could say that advocacy was successful in causing Biden and really the Democratic Party in general to prioritize climate, which is which is a long-term effect. It's not just, you know, necessarily measurable by what gets passed these past two years. Yeah, absolutely. And also I would say like these philanthropic investments are still like small compared to like uh, investments in, in direct technology or like what we're spending overall on climate change. So I think really one really shouldn't be too cynical on, on advocacy at all. By way of wrapping up, pull this back to, because I know what a lot of listeners ask, you know, this is a question anybody who writes or talks about climate change in public gets this question a lot. I'm sure you get it a lot, which is just individuals who want to do something and don't know what to do. Uh, you know, it's one thing, um, obviously you get a lot more leverage affecting what Bezos wants to do than some average schmo off the street. But nonetheless, like it would be nice to have guidance for average people. And I think there are a lot of the same dynamics here in terms of uncertainty in the sense that individuals think, well, if I buy an EV, right, there's a measurable impact, right? It's not huge, but it's certain and I did it. Whereas like, you know, um, tossing money out to an advocacy group can feel a little bit like just throwing dollars out into the ocean and then never knowing <laughs> what, if anything, came of them. So what's your, you know, is your pitch to individuals more or less the same? Or I guess to put the question more simply, what should individuals do? If they have climate money to spend, how do they maximize their impact? Yeah, I think for the first thing I want to kind of say is like, I don't think like consumption choices or behavior change and like giving it's like not an either or. So like for myself, I'm a vegetarian. I actually don't have a driving license because uh, of climate reasons. Well, you also you get to live in a, in a country where that's possible. Uh, yes. yeah. <laughs> and like I, I do my fair share of like lifestyle changes. At the same time, I don't believe and like, like this is not only because of my professional role, but also just in general, because I'm like a middle income person in a, in a rich country. I don't think this is like anywhere close to max the maximum impact I can have. And the reason for that is like, is twofold. Like once it's like, if you're like a typical like middle class person in the Western world in the US, let's say let's say in the US, you're emitting something like 11 tons or so, uh, something in the, on that order per year. And again, you can reduce that to zero. Also, like it's really hard to reduce that to zero. But even if you would like reduce it to zero, and that would like take like really extreme measures. Mm. The first one would be like a lot of that reduction would actually not be additional for the reasons that we kind of alluded to before. Right, because policy's <laughs> in place already. Yeah, about, yeah. So I think that's the first thing. <laughs> and the second part is like reducing emissions by 11 tons per year is actually really unambitious if you think about what you can do. <laughs> so, and it's kind of saying like your responsibility is only towards your own emissions, not towards the emissions related to the fact that like the West got rich on fossil fuels. So it doesn't really make sense as a benchmark either, like even, even as, from this perspective. So that's the first part. The second part is like, even if you're like, so like I would probably say like you can, if you focus on factor philanthropy, you can probably avoid a ton of carbon for, for a dollar or something. Even if you're like 100 times more pessimistic than me, uh, you can kind of like if you're kind of doing lifestyle changes and also donate $1,000, you're already kind of having the same impact with your uh, philanthropic investment. And of course, you don't need to stop there, right? There's no natural bound on what, what you can do uh, philanthropically, while there is like a very natural bound to what you can do for your lifestyle changes. 
Right, yeah. Uh, one of your charts that really uh, made an impression is where you sort of chart the tons of carbon impact of various lifestyle changes and you grant in the chart, let's say that like you buy an EV and it inspires 10 other people to buy an EV. Even if you 10X <laughs> all your lifestyle choices, you're still not going to have anywhere close to the impact you would have, just direct impact you would have by giving your money to a climate organization, a climate advocacy organization, basically. Yeah. Again, I guess I, I would kind of add the caveat here, like a climate organization that kind of tries to like maximize impact at the margin. Right. A good climate organization. Yeah. But one thing I really want to stress in this case, because I think it's like the most common kind of misunderstanding and kind of the thing that makes people really uneasy about this is like, I would really not think about this as offsetting. Like people sometimes ask me, like, how much do I have to donate to a charity to kind of reduce my impact? And like, this is really the wrong mental frame. I think like the mental frame that I want people to take is really different. It's really more about like not offsetting, but like kind of acting morally in, your, in the world in accordance with your values and trying to like have a positive impact. The other thing is like for me, donating is very much, it's not, it's not an offsetting choice. It's a political action. So like in the same way that kind of going into the streets, participating in a protest or calling your representative, it's in that bucket of activities. It's, it's also structurally similar in that like these activities will always have more impact because they're kind of addressing the problem there there's multipliers to be had there and the same kind of multipliers that you can have in your civic engagement kind of apply probably somewhat stronger but like whatever like but the same kind of logic applies so like if you think that like going into the street or calling your representative is like higher impact than your lifestyle choices and i think in almost all cases this will be true then you should believe the same about uh, philanthropy and you shouldn't see it as like offsetting at all with the form of political action the whole focus on offsetting is such a weird artifact of Western individualism. It's such a bizarre way to approach the problem of climate change. Like, yeah, if I can just eliminate my tons, I'm good. Like, this just doesn't, it makes no sense in the context of climate as a, as a global problem. No, no, it absolutely makes no sense at all. In conclusion, say I'm an individual, I'm hearing your message and I'm convinced and I want to give to a good climate organization. Is there somewhere? I can go where you lay out which climate organizations you think are good and effective, like a, a guide to individual giving. Is there somewhere people can go for some help? Yeah. So what we do have on this is, I mean, we, we as Founders Pledge do have uh, a climate fund where we're kind of trying to make the best commitments, like philanthropic commitments, we think uh, are possible. The logic that lies behind this is kind of explored in our reports that we're publishing on our website. So, for example, one of them I think that we've discussed a lot now today is the Changing Landscape report from last November. So mm -hmm. you can go to foundersplatch.com and, and find the report there. You can also include the links in the, in the show notes. And, yeah, I think that the charities that we're highlighting right now would be someone like uh, the Clean Air Task Force with a focus on, like, neglected solutions. Um kind of in decarbonization, Carbon 180 with a focus on carbon removal, future clean tech architects in Germany, which is kind of focused on innovation and hard to decarbonize sectors with a European focus where there's kind of less attention philanthropically to innovation, but a lot of the policy action is there. So that's kind of the bet there. And then um, Terra Praxis, which is focused on advanced nuclear. What if uh, I'm on the other side of things? What if I am in a climate organization, a climate advocacy organization, and I want to get on your list to make the case that I'm a worthy recipient 
of your funds. Is there any kind of formalized process for that? Or do you, do you guys just go out and, and look, or is there some kind of application thing or how does that process work? So what we're kind of trying to do, because I think a lot of kind of what I laid out today and what we lay out in our reports is like, we really kind of try to understand systematic things about the space and then kind of find the organizations that are doing high impact work in kind of the most neglected spaces. So we're not having an application process as such. That being said, I'm happy for people to reach, uh, reach out to me at Johannes at Founders Pledge. But this is not our usual process. So our usual process is kind of we dive into the field, we kind of try to under, understand how it's changing, where kind of the margins are, and kind of try to, to support um, solutions at the margin um, that we think can have a, that we think of as like great bets for counterfactual impact. And I promise this is really the final, final question, but it just occurred to me. Um, say you do an analysis and you find a, a neglected space that you think could be high impact and there is no organization devoted to that space, have you ever thought about trying to spin off or create organizations to fill those spaces? Um, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely something we're open to doing. Until now, this has kind of been a little bit beyond our capacity. But I think what we have been doing a lot, and I think also think of as high impact, so like high impact solution in general is to like support organizations that have like, like are one or two people strong because those are the organizations that do not have the bandwidth to kind of apply to large foundations. Right. So this is actually, um, yeah, actually it's, it's a really important part of our strategy to support those organizations. And also there we're taking like high risk bets, like we're very risk tolerant, like we're not expecting an organization with two people to have the same kind of like strategic plan um, so we're, we're kind of making bets on people or bets on kind of working on neglected solutions. Yeah, diversification. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Johannes. It's been really interesting reading your work and sort of watching the logical stepwise process by which you sort of go through this space and think about the shape of the space and the shape of the uncertainties and everything. It's quite, uh, it's quite clarifying and interesting. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.